In today's episode, we discuss the brain's reaction to trauma triggers, including self-harm and suicidal ideation in frank terms. Please use this information when deciding whether you'd like to listen to this episode today. Welcome to You're Not Crazy, Psychology in Real Life with Dr. Kim Champion and host Malachi Champion, where we discuss how we are all more okay than we sometimes think or feel. Join us on a journey where we explore psychological concepts and apply them to our everyday lives. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of You're Not Crazy with Malachi Champion and Dr. Kim Champion. I'm Malachi. And I'm Kim. Glad to be back. <laughs> yeah. Today, we're talking about a less entry-level psychological topic. Mm -hmm. So today, we're talking about the window of tolerance, which, I mean, obviously, we'll get into. It refers to, from my layman perspective, as I understand it so far, it refers to levels of being triggered and how it affects our behavior in different ways And we'll get into that. But first, how are you today, Mom? I am doing well. This episode that we are currently recording is going to be released in February. So happy birthday to Rachel. Yeah, happy birthday, (laughs) Ray. But I'm doing well. I am probably a little over-caffeinated. I'm over-caffeinated too. It's going to be great. (laughs) But I'm excited about this topic. I'm definitely not a anatomy and physicist or a... You don't mean physicist. You mean physiologist. You're not a physicist. I'm not a physicist either. True, but... (laughs) But I do mean physiologist. I'm also not a brain specialist, but today we're going to focus... Would we call that a neurologist? We could call it a neurologist. We could call it other things too, like... um... We want to keep it appropriate here. No. (laughs) Ha ha. Like a neuroscientist, for example. Okay. But I am excited anyway to dive into some of the neurobiology behind trauma and behind triggers and that's what the window of tolerance is going to bring us to today. This is an area that you're very passionate about. It is an area that I'm very passionate about and the reason is because when we get triggered sometimes the way that we respond looks like an overreaction to the people around us. You seem crazy. You look crazy. And sometimes it feels like an overreaction to ourselves, especially if we really don't understand what's going on. And when we talk about this, it really helps to normalize these responses and it helps us to see that we're not crazy and that really our responses are quite adaptive and also treatable. So what you're saying is even when I overreact, I'm not crazy. Exactly. Let's get into it. What? Okay, but first, how are you, though? Oh, right. I'm fine. <laughs> you know, <laughs> life's a lot of work, and it remains kind of frustrating to be a creative where my creative endeavors don't make money, but that is the life of a creative, mm-hmm. and I know that if, and since I will keep going with it all, that it'll build up eventually. It is building. It's just building so slowly. <laughs> You're a creative and you're also a, I wouldn't call you impatient, but you're... I would call me impatient. Okay, well, maybe you're impatient. But you're also a, um, well, all right, we're going to do that, let's do it. And so you would like your career to do that. 
I want to jump. I jump into things with both feet, but when I jump into something with both feet, I like to be immersed quickly. Right. And so that's the problem here is that I, I have jumped in with both feet, but I guess I'm still falling. I don't know. This metaphor is breaking down. We don't like this metaphor. Let's <laughs> let's move on. We can go ahead and get into it if you're ready to do that. I am so ready. Let's let's do it. All right. All right. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So let's start with just the basics of the neurobiology of trauma, which we have talked about before, at least in part. Yeah, a quick refresher. What are the basics of the topic that you just said that we need for window of tolerance? So what we need for window of tolerance, what we need to understand is that as humans, we function in a state, generally speaking, of the right level of physiological arousal when we're awake, meaning that we are conscious of what's going on around us. We evaluate what's going on around us. We make decisions about the moves we make and the next step we're taking. And we do all of this fairly automatically, but we do it with our, our brain is firing underneath all of that. Okay. If something happens that startles or scares us, then... What happens then, like we talked about with the hand on the burner of the stove, is our thought process shifts from a regular level of our brain firing and our prefrontal cortex, which is the part of our brain that makes decisions and understands time. My understanding is that the prefrontal cortex is where our conscious mind lives. Yes, that's true, actually. Okay. I was going to be like, well, on a basic level that works, but you... <laughs> no, I think it's true. Okay. Our conscious mind is there. Our higher self, our intellectual functioning. When you are taking a class that is engaging your prefrontal cortex... Taking enti- notes entirely. and making connections. And right. That's, that's all the prefrontal cortex at work. Yes. It's where you have a concept of time. It's how you organize yourself. It is the part of your brain that needs to be functioning well to be able to write an essay, like we said with ADHD sometimes. I was going to say, oh, I don't organize myself. (laughs) I know. Well, I barely do. So, Um, But it's the part of your brain that you do all those pre-steps before you actually sit down to write the essay. That's happening in your prefrontal cortex. It's also referred to as your frontal lobe. It's also referred to as your executive functioning. So you may hear me say any of those. and Those all mean prefrontal I, cortex. I mean them interchangeably. I am sure an expert in brain science would say, A real Whoa! physicist would. Ha ha ha. <laughs> would differentiate in some ways, but for our purposes, I probably will use those interchangeably. All right. So if something startles us or scares us or we touch something hot, in order to not take extra time to respond by having our prefrontal cortex judge what's going on and think about it and then choose a direction and then execute the direction. Thereby causing more damage. Thereby allowing more time to cause more damage. Exactly. It bypasses your frontal lobe, the stimulus of whatever scared you or was hot or whatever, bypasses your frontal lobe and it goes straight to your amygdala. Your amygdala is where you, they refer to it as the relay station of the brain. And that is where your brain decides to do something reflexively and quick to protect you. So your brain might say, oh dear, pull your hand away from the burner. Your amygdala might say that before your prefrontal cortex has figured out that That you're touching something hot. Okay. 
So just general functioning, person who doesn't have PTSD or just in general, their amygdala will right away jump in to take care of the situation. But if it's really nothing, like if the situation's not a big deal, or if it resolves very quickly, like it's just your hand on a burner and you pull it back, your frontal lobe never goes fully offline. It sticks around. So it didn't get used to make that decision, but it didn't go away either. So then your prefrontal cortex has stayed online and then you just go on with normal decision-making and functioning. Like you go put your hand underwater to make sure it stops burning. Cool, not cold, kids. Really? Yeah, you traumatize the skin. Wow, whole other kind of trauma. Okay, good to know, good to know. (laughs) And you can just go back to whatever you were doing, cooking your dinner or having your conversation with somebody that you were maybe on the phone with or whatever you were doing. You can just go back to it. You pick up your phone, but once you do... (laughs) Hope it's not cracked. So... Whereas... If you have a history of trauma and your system has been used to functioning at a higher level of arousal, which I will come back to and explain better in a second. When that startle happens, when that sudden thing happens, it is more likely that your frontal lobe will get skipped, your amygdala will tell you what to do, but your frontal lobe will go offline and it will be hard to get your thinking back or to make the next decision potentially because now your system internally has gone into a fight or flight or freeze mode because it's so trained to do that. This can happen because of a particular trigger that is related to some of the trauma history, or it can happen just because of anything that sets your system off like that, and that itself is a trigger. So the trigger doesn't necessarily have to be related to the original traumatic event. The example, we got these big windows we're sitting right next to, the example of a sudden, a startle, is like an acorn blowing out of a tree and tapping against the glass really loud out of nowhere. It's a harmless startle. But if your brain is so used to protecting you when suddenly you're not sure if you're safe, then it doesn't reset itself as quickly. That's right. That's exactly right. Because that's why we're talking about this window here, is that when that acorn taps on the glass, then you spike. Mm -hmm. Our nervous system, which is our brain and our spinal column and all our nerve endings, it has to do with all of our sensory input. When we have any kind of input at all, our nervous system sends that input to the brain and then somewhere in the brain, depending on what it is, it gets processed, evaluated, and it gets decided by your brain whether it's going to remember it or not remember it, use it or not use it, react to it or not react to it. And you need a certain amount of activation of your nervous system to carry that process out. When a person is chronically depressed, their activation of their nervous system is often very low. And when a person is highly anxious, to oversimplify, their nervous system is often spiked. Around beyond that that upper bound. Right. Above the optimal level of functioning. So when a person has experienced especially chronic trauma... During the years of living through that trauma, maybe if they were abused as a child, for example, and they had an alcoholic parent and they never knew if the parent was going to come home drunk or not. They never knew if the evening was going to be 
just calm a quiet evening, not. right, calm, or whether it was going to be an evening where they needed to run and hide, that would leave their activation level generally fairly high because they're hypervigilant, they're watching, they're paying attention all the time. When this parent pulls in the driveway, does the, do they look, when they get home from work, do they look like they're in a good mood or a bad mood? When they walk in, what's the first thing they do? And you learn as a kid, like gut level, viscerally, you learn to interpret these clues and then you can settle down or not. But because you have spent all this time being in this hyper aroused state, your system has trouble then learning how to modulate what level of where you should be activation wise. So going back to when there's a startle, for example, what happens is it's your autonomic nervous system that we're talking about. And when a startle happens, your sympathetic nervous system is what activates everything to go straight to the amygdala and to respond reflexively and to set off alarm bells. It's your sympathetic nervous system. And the way I remember it, because I often forget, but the way I... It seems like these are easy to mix up with one another. They are. The way I remember it is it's like your nervous system is sympathizing with the environment. The environment has caused you a problem. And so then you, your sympathetic nervous system, kicks in to manage that problem. You're walking down the street. You see somebody walk out of a store with a gun. Your sympathetic nervous system is going to come into play. It's going to send your arousal up. It's going to cause you to feel shaky and sweaty and nervous and maybe like... like, Should I turn around? Should I walk in the other direction? Yes, scared, and that's because it's going to set off hormones that fire you up, activate you, and it's going to send blood to your extremities so that you can run or fight, protect yourself, so you can flee or fight. So then the other F is freezing. Does that happen when you're aroused to such a degree that you can't make a decision? Freezing can happen for a few different reasons. The first likely thing is that the sympathetic nervous system will come in, you'll be prepared to flee or fight, and then you'll do something, and then you'll be in a better situation, and then the parasympathetic nervous system kicks in, and that releases hormones and shifts things so that your system calms down, your breathing settles down, your heart rate settles down, the blood goes back to not just focusing on your extremities, the adrenaline settles down, and all of that happens. That regulates you, that resets you. So freeze comes in either when it's so overwhelming, you've shot so far past your window of tolerance, like we talked about before with just what causes a traumatizing moment, that your system goes into collapse. Okay. Your system cannot figure it out, and so... Overwhelmed. It's overwhelmed. It's like the literal definition of overwhelmed. Freeze also will happen if in a dangerous situation, your amygdala and other parts of your brain judge that to be the safest. Mm. So <laughs> the, in my getting stung by bees trigger example, my that would be the autonomic nervous system figured out that freezing was the safest response, right? Or am I backwards because I think autonomic and automatic mean the same thing? No, no. Uh, it is your autonomic nervous system that kicks in. But not because it means automatic. That's just how they're connected in my mind. That's how I remember. Okay. Cool. Yeah. So that that freeze would be an example of my autonomic nervous system learning that when there is a stinging insect in play, don't move mm-hmm. because then you won't aggravate it. 
Yes, your brain has trained yourself. You've trained your brain to freeze when there's a stinging insect. And so the it is the sympathetic nervous system coming in and setting off. I thought it was the autonomic nervous system. The autonomic nervous system is made up by the sympathetic and the parasympathetic Got it. I responses. didn't connect that earlier. So the autonomic nervous <laughs> system is the whole system that responds to stimuli. The sympathetic part of that is the part that comes into play when there's something extraordinary to respond to. Okay. And the parasympathetic system comes in to bring that back down to just typical functioning. And then do we have a term for what we call normal functioning in this context? Optimal arousal. All right. So... So optimal arousal means you are going to be more activated if you are running a race... Mm-hmm. And that's optimal for that situation. And you are going... Still within the window of tolerance there. Yep. And on the normal course of events when you're at your job or in school, whatever you're doing, it's whatever the level of functioning is that allows you to perform best in that environment. Right. Okay. So then the autonomic nervous system is the response team. The sympathetic part of okay. the autonomic nervous system. Got it. The autonomic nervous system just is, and it's just doing its thing. Okay. I have a metaphor because I'm working to understand this. Mm-hmm. So the autonomic nervous system is like there's a traffic cam and the system of response associated with that traffic cam. So the traffic cam witnesses a car accident. It dispatches the first responders. That's the sympathetic nervous system. Yes. And then it dispatches uh, you know, the police officer and the tow truck. And maybe the ambulance has come and gone, but we still need like another one just to check on the people who didn't need to be rushed to the hospital to bring us back to normal road functioning and making sure everybody that needed treatment gets treatment and that the nervous system as a whole understands what happened in order to know how to respond next time. And the the tow truck and the police officer are the parasympathetic. They work to return functioning back to normal. That can that could work. For our yes. purposes here, that obviously. That could work. The first part of it works really well. That it, the sympathetic okay. nervous system is the first responders getting there and assessing the situation. And okay. then the parasympathetic, I don't know perfectly where that fits in the metaphor, but you have the right idea. Gotcha. So Good enough to move on? Good enough to move on. So now that we've talked about how the nervous system works, let's talk about... Are we going to get practical? We're going to try to get practical here. (laughs) We're not very practical people, so... So if you have PTSD or have experienced a lot of trauma, even if you're not diagnosed with PTSD, when something sets off your sympathetic nervous system to come in... Wee-hoo, (laughs) wee-hoo. Yes. Then a variety of things can happen. One thing that can happen is that your frontal lobe will, I always say go offline, but basically it will stop being involved in what you're doing next. It'll take its hands off. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. And that may be because of dissociating, which kind of in a way wraps your frontal lobe in a in a bubble. Or, a big, old, or... big old sheet of bubble wrap. <laughs> Right, or numbs it out or separates. It also doesn't have to be because of that. It can also be, I mean, at first, it can be just because you're staying in that alarmed state. So the window of tolerance is a term we use in therapy a lot because when we're working with someone who has been traumatized, we want to keep the work we're doing within the window of tolerance. 
we want the person to be able to keep their activation settled down and their brain online, their frontal lobe online in general, to be able to understand how those events impacted them and to begin to heal through them. This goes back to that your brain has to address the trauma in order to heal from it, but if it is too triggered, it can't do the work. What we're talking about today is that if it goes outside of the window of tolerance for your patient or client or friend or however you want to talk about this, then it ceases to be a healthy situation. Right. Okay. And it's very uncomfortable. What happens is... <laughs> I believe that. So for the person who is outside their window of tolerance, it's distressing. It feels, especially if you're in a therapy session, you supposedly are safe. By definition, hopefully you're safe. So it feels, it can feel confusing. It can feel distressing. It's upsetting because you can't get your thoughts anymore. Sometimes you can't speak very well. That's a common trauma thing. Yes, because part of the functioning that goes a little bit dark, goes a little bit offline, is Broca's area, which is the speech area of your brain. And so your speech may, I mean, you may get mute, like where you can't talk. I've seen people so dissociated that they really can't talk. And it takes a lot of grounding, gentle grounding, to get them to the place where they can begin to be in the room again and be able to talk. Usually it doesn't take away your ability for speech, but it does make it really, really hard to find the right words, to to say what you're trying to say, to get your thoughts together. I had a friend call me once during a, um, I think she was having a flashback and wanted, needed grounding. And she sounded like she was in extreme pain, mm. which I mean, I believe, but like, I, I mean, like literally physical like like she just broke her leg right and so it was no i like that mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. like i thought it was at the time i kind of thought it was because she was having trouble specifically with the world around her mm-hmm. but as we talk about this i kind of realized that it was more a result of her brain not being connected to itself in this way Yes, that she couldn't express herself and she probably was feeling pain. Whether she was feeling physical pain in some part of her body that was triggered or whether she was, it was the pain of the overwhelming emotions, the pain you heard was probably... Oh yeah, I'm not at all discounting the reality of the pain, but like you said, it was like she broke her leg. Mm -hmm. And, or the other thing is like, and this is a little disturbing, but it was like she was getting pulled underwater. Mm. And then her head would break the surface and she'd... (sighs) And then be able to say a couple words and then she'd go back under water. Right. Actually, that... Yeah, it's disturbing, but that's a good example (laughs) because that's probably what was happening in her brain. She was getting a moment of frontal lobe activity and then it was getting washed over again. And so that makes sense. And I'm glad she was comfortable to call you because that meant she felt like you were a safe potentially grounding person. I, yeah, I, a lot of people call me a grounding person, which is fascinating to me because I don't feel very grounded myself, but... You're, yeah, (laughs) you actually are, you're kind of a centered person. Yeah. You can be all over the place, but that doesn't mean you're not grounded. Well, but that's like, it's all on the ground still. (laughs) It's all on the ground. It's a wide two-dimensional area, but it doesn't go... Yes, but it's on the ground. Vertical. Yes. So... Thank you. 
by the way. You're welcome. Was, I kind of laughed and said, yeah, when you called me a centered person, but I appreciate that. You're welcome. I try. But that is a good example of what happens when we're outside of our window of tolerance. Our brain is not functioning like it typically would. And I have this image of all these dials and gauges, the needle going maximum, then minimum, then up and down and up and down, like, ah, it's all going in. Steam is coming out of the (laughs) console. Yeah, that's a good image, actually. And so part of helping yourself if you're in that situation is reaching out and getting support or putting yourself in a calm place, being somewhere familiar and safe, doing the grounding things to remind yourself that you are in today. You're in 2022 and you're sitting on the couch and you're in a familiar place and nothing around you is actually dangerous. It takes pulling your frontal lobe back even a little to help the rest of yourself to get that comfort, get that centering so that the rest of you can start to believe that and settle down. Because I had a continuing education instructor one time say, the cells inside your brain don't know that it's not happening right now. That's huge. That changed my understanding of it. Yeah. Yeah. When the actual pathways get triggered that were firing when you were abused or going through whatever your chronic trauma was, when those pathways start firing, those pathways, what's happening in your brain, there's nothing to tell it that it's not right back there. I have another metaphor. I I see a submarine crew. And they're looking at the sonar console. And they're underwater. There's no windows in a submarine. And so all they have is this signature that could be a majestic and harmless blue whale or the biggest submarine that I've ever seen. And we almost got caught last week by an unfamiliar enemy submarine. And so all I have is this readout and it's sudden and we have to act now. And the submariners are your brain cells. They don't know the difference. They don't know the difference. All they know is that they are potentially in danger and need to act if we are in danger. And it's the same signal. Yeah, that's a good metaphor. So yes, that's what's happening there. When people chronically get triggered like that, especially when they don't understand that that's what's happening, the way that we cope with that is we will do things to bring our nervous system down. Lower our level of arousal. To lower our level of arousal. So that is where sometimes self-medicating can come in. Either somebody using a substance that actually works to bring their... And that does work. I mean, it does. I'm not... It brings, I'm not... Yeah, it brings their level of arousal down. The problem is that they're not... <laughs> I'm not promoting alcoholism. But they're not addressing the actual thing that's going on. So that will only work in the moment and only for a time. Because at some point, if you chronically need that, that's going to become maladaptive in your life. And so what has to happen eventually is that you connect this symptom, which is feeling maybe disconnected and anxious and over the top of where you feel like you should be right now based on what's actually going on around you. When you feel like that, chronically, if you can connect that to, oh, wow, that is what my brain got trained to do while I was growing up or Mm -hmm. during that long period in college or whatever your history is. If you can make that connection, then you're able to begin to work on that. First of all, it helps you not feel crazy. Right. Because now you understand it's a symptom of something. Yeah. Real. 
And it's not, you're just wacky because you're constantly nervous about things. Or you have no self-control because every time you get what you call a little bit upset, you crack a beer. Right, exactly. And so when you can connect those feelings, those experiences, those symptoms to actually what they go with, then you've done the first little piece of healing and you can then work on those things either in therapy or understanding yourself better. You can do other things to calm yourself like yoga or meditation. I was going to say breathing exercises. Breathing exercises. um, Going for a walk. Going for a walk. I mean, you can do those things and those will bring you down. And if those things manage it, then fantastic. But if it's still interrupting your quality of life or it's just really not managing it, then certainly doing therapy to work on those symptoms that have gotten in the way of your life is a good call. One way that we might manage those feelings is we might choose to self-medicate. Sometimes people will counterintuitively actually use substances, but they'll use things that bring them up. And that could be for a variety of reasons. I'm definitely Are cigarettes an example of that, do you think? Yeah, every every Nicotine single thing because well, there's a sense of relief with it. Yeah. Even okay. though it's an upper, it gives you a sense of relief. And I don't know if that's because there's already an addiction to it. And so you have a relief when you meet the craving. Right. Because I I am not a specialist in addiction. So I don't really know for sure. But I do know. Well, actually, this I know. When you feel out of control because you're out of that window of tolerance, anything you do that you feel in control of will in that moment give you relief. Which is where cutting comes from. That's another behavior that people will choose to bring themselves back into the window of tolerance. Use the term self-harm instead. Because they will choose to do something that is destructive to themselves because they have control over that. There's also physiological pieces to that. When people do cut, often there is a dopamine release. Dopamine is the chemical in your brain that gives you some soothing or pleasure. Dopamine also gets released when you exercise heavily. Which is also technically harming your body. If you do it to an extreme. Well, but no, because building muscle mass is causing small micro damage to the muscles that the muscles then have to repair. And the process of repairing the muscle makes it bigger. So it makes me think of a, a person I knew in college who confided in me that they had a, a history of self-harm and that part of the relief of cutting themselves was the fact that they were able to, it was a problem that they knew how to solve. And so it allowed them to exercise control over their life. And this person did generally feel out of control of their own life. So... So it makes a lot of sense. Not only that, it creates a situation where they can perform self-care. Yeah. Too. So, you know... That's a really good point. Yeah. You create a situation where you then may have to wash your wound and bandage it. Stop the bleeding. And Right. Stop the bleeding. And internally, uh, you don't feel like you can stop the bleeding. So Mm -hmm. if you create bleeding, you can stop stop the bleeding. So, which leads me also to suicidal thinking. Another reason that... Another way to exercise control. It is another way to exercise control. A lot of times, people who have been traumatized are suicidal because during the time that they were being traumatized, they felt powerless and helpless. And the only thing that they knew they could control is if it ever got that bad, they could kill themselves. 
They always had that out. Yeah. Now, obviously, they didn't kill themselves. They wanted to live, but it helped tolerate the pain and the unpredictability of their life to know that ultimately they had a way out. And so that is one of the reasons why in therapy, it gets confusing for therapists because when people talk about wanting to kill themselves, we we need to make sure they're safe in the moment, obviously, right. but also we have to understand that that's a valid thought process they have. Not because they should kill themselves, certainly, but because that was adaptive when it developed. And usually, most of themselves, they want to live. Right. If, If I had another exit, I would take it. Right. Any other exit, I would take it. And so now they're adults. Maybe they're in more control of their life as far as their environment is safer. The person who abused them is in jail or they don't see them anymore. And and so, right. But that suicidal thinking holds on. And again, it's generally just a part of them that needs to be validated and addressed as at one time protective, Mm -hmm. but no longer needed. And that's where, again, you have to help the cells inside your brain understand you're in a different place. We can let go of this now because we are truly in a different place. I see why you want to do an episode on parts. That's what you just touched on. And it's that's a piece of language that is so... It flies under the radar. Yes. That's, and I think everybody has said, well, part of me wants to go to the bagel shop for breakfast, but part of me wants to go to the diner. And I just don't know what I want to do, what I think I should do. And that is a perfectly healthy person discussing that topic. They have two different desires and they both exist. And they're equally valid. They're equally valid. Which is part of why decision making is hard. But so that's, I guess, a little teaser for a future episode. Absolutely. That you've been talking about. Another good example of what you're saying with that is that to use an example that draws in a little bit less healthy and a little bit more healthy, because that was, those were equivalent things. Right. Part of me wants to go to bed on time and exercise daily and be healthy and disciplined. That's funny. I have that part too. (laughs) Several parts of me would prefer to stay up later than is healthy and do what I feel like doing and not exert myself to exercise. And so that is a battle. Those parts in me outnumber that first part as well. <laughs> Notice I said it that way, yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, so that's a battle I have, and both of those parts in me are valid, but some of that is healthier than other. And that's true for all of us. We all have that. With traumatized people, there's a little more dichotomy there. I was going to say there's more distance between the parts. There can certainly be more distance between the parts and a lot more complex layers to that. And that definitely would be a really awesome future episode. I think it would be enlightening and fun to talk about. Yeah. But that's not what we're talking about this week. No. And actually, we're kind of towards the end. So do you have any questions for me? Can we touch briefly on what the opposite of excessively stimulated is? I don't think we've really covered that. We didn't much. actually talk about that. You I, said at the beginning it'll look like depression. So it's kind of what you said. That's me extrapolating a bit. Right. The other way that being outside your window of tolerance can look is it can look like being very depressed, and it's called hypoarousal. It's where as you're as opposed to hyperarousal. As opposed to hyperarousal, you're underneath the window of tolerance instead of above it, and that can look like very, very unmotivated, lethargic, sad, just no desire to do things, no, no hope, low energy. So, but a trigger can send you into hypoarousal as well. 
Yes. And will that a startle be... ever do that? Or will a startle generally lead to hyperarousal? A startle could lead to an initial hyperarousal and then a quick rebound a rapid decline. into hypoarousal, like really quick. And that's because it set off your freeze response, your internal brain freeze response. And so your amygdala said, danger, Will Robinson. And it shut down, you know, it shut things down. And that might be because when you were young, you learned that if you flew under the radar, if you stayed real still and quiet, if you didn't react to things, that was safer for you. Mm -hmm. So that would be one way that could play out. Another way it can play out is that you're in hypoarousal, hyperarousal, where your sympathetic nervous system has kicked in because there was a startle or a circumstance. Maybe the person who hurt you appeared in the venue that you're in. You smelled that perfume. Or you smelled the, the exactly. So something set off a response and maybe you don't know how to modulate that. You don't know how to bring yourself back into your window of tolerance. And so you use a behavior that is maladaptive, like you go and drink a whole bunch or something. You can emerge from that maybe the next morning or whatever in a state of hypoarousal. You wake up the next morning depressed because it set off all these feelings. It was upsetting and it brings you down. And now I don't have the energy to deal with all of this. Right. And so that would be the other side, the, the, bo- the bottom of the window of tolerance. Or underneath the window, window of tolerance. Ugh. Eloquently <laughs> fake. I, I might be done with this. <laughs> Are the coping mechanisms to bring us back within our window of tolerance for both hyper and hypo arousal roughly the same? Sometimes the same strategies will work. Sometimes there are strategies that are more specialized to one or the other. For example, if you are in hypoarousal and you're just very unmotivated and very low energy and struggling to pull yourself out of that. Got that generally depressive thing going on? Right. Something that you can do, you can do simple little things to just begin to shift what's going on in your brain firing, like change your position Yes, going for a walk will help. A lot of times when you're that depressed, that's overwhelming. Like, moving from no the bedroom way. to the living room would be a better... But just, yes, just getting up and going to a different room of the house. Or watching something on YouTube or Netflix that is a little bit more engaging, that you don't just escape into. Maybe a wonderful thing on space exploration, so it makes you think a little bit. Like a trivia game show? Or it could be that, so that you're pulled into trying to answer yeah, the questions. See if you can... Anything that's just the tiniest bit activating. It doesn't have to be a lot of effort, but that will begin to shift that. Video games are good for that, too. Video games can definitely help that. With watching something on YouTube or Netflix or video games, what you have to be careful of is the monotonous ones that will just pull you into more meditative state. It's two types of media. Media that makes you feel things and media that makes you feel numb. And so you don't want numbing necessarily right. and <laughs> when you you're to, already feeling numb. And you have to evaluate that for yourself, yeah. how things affect you. When you are hyper-aroused, the stuff we mentioned a little bit before, we said taking deep breaths... We talked about getting outside and going for a walk, breathing, removing yourself from a situation, listening to calming music, listening to soothing music, listening to upbeat music. <laughs> that could be activating. 
that could be that could also be soothing like for me upbeat music just i think upbeat music must give me a dopamine release because i feel happy when i hear upbeat music and so sometimes if i love to dance so if you could dance to it it makes you happy that's exactly right i think is what it is actually dancing is another anything you do that's a creative outlet or that's an outlet so exercise writing if you're hypo aroused or hyper aroused journaling can help what if you're just writing about how horrible you feel? That is fantastic because it is an outlet. You're putting it out onto paper. Putting it onto paper. Your brain doesn't have to keep holding it. Now, if you are writing about how horrible you feel and you are sinking deeper into it, then you want to try uh, shifting that strategy a little bit. Maybe try something else. Maybe try writing what you're also thankful for. Uh. Maybe try writing how you felt the last time you felt good, if you can remember. Maybe writing the tiniest glimmer of positive that you may have felt that day. Uh, Maybe it was just the moonlight coming in the window at a certain angle and you thought, oh, maybe that's it. But just anything to shift that. You can also write a short story about somebody with the emotions you're having. Or you can write something creative about anything with any emotion. doesn't matter. There's a YouTuber who likes the film John Wick and watches it on bad days because when he's having a bad day, it makes him feel better to watch someone have a worse day than him. <laughs> okay, so right. you got to know what makes you feel better. Yep. Creating visual art of some sort can help just simply because you're letting your brain do something other than focus on... Express itself. Right, and you're also firing different neural pathways than are firing when you are actively feeling sad or low. So those are all ideas for things that you can try to help yourself feel better. And even if we didn't mention it, what you're thinking of right now, give it a try. Exactly. <laughs> if it's healthy, yeah, give it if, it's a, <laughs> if it's healthy, I can't help saying that, but yes, give you it a try. You are the expert, so... And, and actually... Go to our Facebook page and give us your ideas. Yeah, send them in. Give other people your ideas by putting them on our Facebook page. We would love to hear from you. So what should I do with this information on window of tolerance? How can I apply what we've discussed to take care of myself out in the world? I love that question. Thanks. This is what I've been struggling with about this topic this whole time. Yeah, right, right. How is it practical? Right. Yes. Probably the biggest application, the one I'm most passionate about, is if you are hearing this podcast and you feel like you react to things in ways that other people would judge to be an overreaction, or you feel like your reactions are just out of the norm, or you feel like you walk around all the time trying to calm yourself down, (laughs) what I hope is that you hear this and you think, oh, okay, there could be some really good explanations for this. I am not crazy. I am not weird. I'm not wimpy or incapable of managing my life. I simply have neural pathways that are getting stimulated that set off my nervous system, that activate me, that then drive behaviors that aren't good for me. We use relationships sometimes in unhealthy ways to calm ourselves down. Yeah, as self-medication. Right. So like constantly only helping someone else and pleasing them and doing everything for them and shutting off anything we might need or want or feel. So that might be... I've dated people like that. <laughs> I'm sure. I love being the center of attention, but like there's a point after which it's like, wait, 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 wait. Right. And also, could I do something for you? Maybe and at some point. Just at some point. <laughs> right. And so... 
that's another example. But if you're a person who does that, you know, puts themselves beyond last, like way, way last in any relationship, on the one hand, awesome. You have a big heart. and There's a and lot to be said for a selfless heart. So much to be said for that. And I'm glad you're loving. And looking into this will not make you lose that. However, there are healthy ways to do that. And on the off chance that you're doing it in a way that is destructive to you, it's good to check into. My biggest passion is for people to connect that these things may be related to a history of chronic trauma, or chronic stress that they would benefit to look at, evaluate, go get therapy, and free yourself up. Get free from feeling oppressed all the time by feeling activated and nervous and feeling like you're not coping well or like you're reacting weirdly to things. Get freed up from that. Well, cool. I didn't fully grasp your vision for this topic until about halfway through this discussion. (laughs) Which I think is emblematic of how much you know about this stuff. I, I, because I've spent like most of my life learning what I can from you because I I find your field absolutely fascinating. Partially because I write characters and so I like understanding the different ways that people's brains work. Partially because I grew up here and you talk about it and so it's just part of my life. But then also because there is something basically fascinating to me as a person to learn about how people think. But so even though I've learned what I can from you and from some other sources throughout my short to medium length life here, I just went into this trusting that we could make this relevant in the ways that we have made past episodes relevant. And I feel profoundly that we did. So I'm really excited about that. Good, good on you. Well, thank I don't you. Know how to... Thanks for trusting me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and thank you all for listening. You're why we do it. And as always, please send in your questions and your coping mechanisms. And so hit us up. Give it a try. Yeah, we would definitely love to hear from you. And we would love to also hear any topics that you're interested in. Obviously, trauma is my passion. And I... I mean, I think I could do 20 more episodes on various aspects of trauma. Sure we will. But if there's a certain part of trauma you want to hear more about, or if there are other topics entirely that you want to hear about, we would love to know that. Speaking of which, do we have any user questions this week? Um, actually, we might have one. We do. We have one. Where, where is it? Recorded. Oh, right. So before we wrap up, one of the things we want to do on the show is we want to interact with you guys. And if you guys have questions and things, we want to respond to those. Because this will be way more fun if it's a dialogue rather than a dialogue. Hold on. A monologue. (laughs) Two monologues put together. Right. This will be more fun, I think, for everyone if we correspond rather than just airdropping our dialogues at you. So I had a friend, when I told her that uh, one of the things that we wanted to address was the more pop psych type stuff, and to help sort through the values of things like that, uh, she said, well, the two pop psych things that I think I see people rely on more heavily than probably they should are the Myers-Briggs and the five love languages. 
Ah. So I wanted to, just briefly, obviously we could do entire episodes on both of those, but I wanted to just briefly ask you kind of what you think of... The, the specific example that she used for the... I think it's MBTI is the... the Myers-Briggs type indicator. Type indicator. I couldn't remember what TI stood for. Um, other than Texas Instruments and the calculator name, but that's neither here nor there. <laughs> I wanted to ask you what your thoughts on, like, companies asking for your MBTI results with oh. applications. And I imagine that there are uh, dating sites or people who avoid certain personality matrices when looking for a partner. Yeah, I agree that those may be over-relied upon in certain circles. There is research that shows that the Myers-Briggs type indicator and a couple of other assessments like that are reasonable tools for employers, but they shouldn't be used rigidly and in a vacuum. The thing that strikes me about a tool is that it's part of a kit. Exactly. It should be used as part of a more comprehensive, same way that psychological testing, when you test for diagnosis and psychoeducational assessment and all of that, you don't take anything in a vacuum. You look at the whole picture with a broad variety of tests. So for employers, I actually, I think I think it was a podcast I just listened to about the MM. Um, the MBTI and the, I got confused because there's a test called the MMPI also, which is the Minnesota Multiphasic Personality Inventory. I have never heard of that one before. That one, that one's a diagnostic instrument. I just The Minnesota one? Yeah. Uh, although employers have used the MMPI too, but that's a whole other thing. So there is research substantiating positive results and it's in the, the field of industrial organizational psychology. That is... A fascinating thing that I've never heard of. Industrial organizational psychology? Yes. Uh-huh. That is a field where they study... Um, how to organize industries based on how people is? <laughs> yes. They, and they do. They <laughs> consult with corporations. They help with hiring. They help with culture change within a corporation. They do all kinds of very fascinating things, actually, Neat. on the organizational level. So there is evidence for that being positive to use it. You just shouldn't have 10 people apply for a job, give them all the Myers-Briggs, and then pick one based on their matrix. Like, that isn't... I think the the keenest thing you said was it is a tool, not a magic bullet to instantly understand a person. Exactly. And so the misconception is that the MBTI will unlock all the secrets about a person's... Right. Everything. Person. Personality. Right. Drives, strengths. All of that. And so, and there are a lot of people who have really educated themselves on the MM, the MBTI. <laughs> Keep doing that. Ah, because the other one is more something I've spent time on in my training. Oh, okay. The Myers-Briggs, some people have really educated themselves on, have gone to great lengths with it. They, they, they link it with other personality tests and they look at how they go together. And there's a lot of really fun, interesting conversations you can have with that. And a lot of information that is helpful that comes from it, but it is definitely not a magic bullet, like you said. And then the five love languages, I love. And Well, I, you taught me about that when I was in high school, and it's informed my dating life in a very positive way. Well, that's good. That's good. It helped my marriage, because Chris, your dad... I know, I met him. I met him. Because my husband is, uh, he's not highly talkative like me, 
And so his love language main one is acts of service. He wants to do things for people to show them he loves them. And just the notion of, of realizing that that's something that somebody would do out of love and to express love yes. is was revolutionary for me. Me too. Me too, because not only does he receive love that way, but he gives it that way. So I receive love much more through words. I want to hear I love you a hundred times a day. Like, I'm just... And? Physical touch. I was going to pat you on the... <laughs> you're going to pat me on the shoulder. I want to be hugged and told I love you. And I am filled up and nurtured for... Like, that is that is me. Well, dad is, I want to do things for you, and I want, I want to spend time with you. Yeah. And spend time with you when you're not looking at your phone, Kim. <laughs> Just to pull an example out, you know, out of <laughs> Again, the hat. Again, out of the hat. <laughs> so when I found out that acts of service was a way to give love, all of a sudden I felt so loved. Right. Because I realized all the things he does to show me he loves me. It unlocks me. a whole world. Yes. And it helped me appreciate him more. So I think it's a wonderful tool also. If I only define dad in terms of acts of service, or if I only thought about ways that I am because of the five love languages, I'm severely limiting both of us. Even if you use the MBTI and love languages, you're still limiting it. What's the downside to, is the only downside to thinking in terms of the love languages, the possibility of limiting your understanding of a person? Or are they as rigid as the basics would have us believe? I think that any of those type of things, anything that you put people into categories is potentially problematic. Potentially a problem because it can limit your view of a person. A person could limit their view of themselves. Oh, well, yeah, um, I'm, I'm acts of service, so I don't have to tell you I love you. Well, it makes you probably learn how to say I love you. Like, that is not a bad thing. Would that be something that's important even between two people who neither of them are words of affirmation? It could be. That verbal expression? It very much could be because... So, the five love languages, I think that we all give and receive love in all of those ways. It's just that a couple of them are stronger for us. I was, I, I didn't realize I was looking for you to say that, but I absolutely was. Yes. And that's, it's just like saying, well, I'm a, I'm a laid back person. And then deciding that means that you never fight for a deadline. Yeah, you don't care. Right? Yeah. Cool. That's all we have. I, all right. I don't have anything else to say, if you can believe it. Yep. So we'll see you next time. Thank you guys so much. I've been Malachi Champion. And I'm Kim Champion. Never forget to be gentle with yourself. Bye! (laughs) Thank you for joining us for this episode of You're Not Crazy, Psychology in Real Life. We hope that you enjoyed it and maybe learned something along the way. Look for us on Instagram and Twitter at You're Not Crazy PC. We'd love to hear from you. You're Not Crazy is produced for entertainment and educational purposes only and is not intended to be psychotherapy of any type. No discussion, commentary, words, or suggestions are meant to be construed as therapy, intervention, diagnosis, or as constituting a therapeutic relationship. If you feel unsafe, suicidal, homicidal, or in danger of harming yourself or others in any way, please seek therapeutic or crisis intervention through medical or mental health services in your area or call 911.